0: Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you all for uh, joining us. It is um, a unique pleasure to be here at my alma mater. And I want to begin by asking if you know what Niels Bohr, the Nobel Prize for Physicist, and Yogi Berra have in common. In fact, Mark Twain has something in common with them as well. And they are all all of them have been attributed to quote. What? It is tough to make predictions Especially about the future So Yogi Berra when he said it People laughed As opposed to here I don't know if I don't have the same delivery I haven't gotten the uh when Niels Bohr said it uh, It was taken as a serious Quantum physics uh, Thought uh, and so on and so forth. So today, what we're going to try to do in less than an hour is to talk about the future, to predict the future of the Jewish community in the diaspora, a small group of, uh, of countries. So we're going to focus here on the United States, and you have everything else except for Israel. Okay, have I murdered? And I want you to have the opportunity, and I will ask, beg forgiveness of the panelists, if I began to say the full bios of everybody on this uh, stage, you uh, could forget about having any time for any questions. So seated to my right uh, is Mike Bain. Mike Bain is the president of the Orthodox Union. He carries the weight of many on his shoulders, but I will share with you that uh, when I reach out to him, and I'm not the only one, he sets aside time. doesn't matter if it's 11 a.m., 12 a.m., or 2 a.m. But he always sets aside time in order to speak with me and to care about the individual as much as he cares about the clock. That's much. To my left is Rabbi Dr. Lenny Metanki Thank you. Uh, Rabbi Metanki and I uh, go back uh, a little bit, he's the Rabbi of Congregation Kins of West Rogers Park, the Dean of the Ida Crown Jewish Academy, past president of the Rabbinical Council of America. Uh, And so, since he's west of the Hudson, we talk to him about everything else that happens what we call out of town. And thank you for being here to represent them. And I'll explain to you that once a month, once every six weeks, I get a call, Eric Shabbos, and it's my friend, not Rabbi Dr. Mutanki, it's my friend Lenny, who's just calling to wish me a good Shabbos. And again, that's that kind of leadership that we have here both in Maish and in Lenny, that they take a look at the entire gamut of the Jewish people, but also down to the individual level, to wonder, how are you doing And last but certainly not least, sitting on the end, Rabbi Mar- Ephraim Mervis, Chief Rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth. Uh, we have only just met, and I look forward to your phone calls, either Eric Shabbos... <laughs> That would be on Shabbos for (laughs) today. So we'll have to figure out a different time. Um, And and to to begin, so that we can begin to answer, but we are honored to have your presence here and uh, for you to share in this uh, important conversation. So it's tough to make predictions about the future. And yet, we are going to begin to try and understand what does the future hold for Jewish communities in the diaspora. The first question that we wanted to grapple with, deals with Orthodox Jewry in particular. And what Orthodox Jewry might look like in an age of Orthodox fracture. A few points of uh, information. First, Orthodox Jewry in 2018 might look more like Orthodoxy in 1938 Hungary than Orthodoxy in 1998 America. With tremendous expansion comes increased variation even if this wasn't a period in which the customization of identity was so shaped by the ascension of personal technology. That's point number one. Point number two. On the surface, it appears that the centrist Orthodox day school population is at best flat over the last 20 years, but may actually be in decline. While more recent numbers suggest an upward trend in enrollment, the reality is much more complex As orthodoxy fractures, American Haredi schools have begun increasingly catering to centrist orthodox parents and students, and schools that were once identified as centrist orthodox are affiliating more with American Haredi Jews. And finally, what were once subcultures? For example, there were less than 60 Chabad houses on campus in 1998, and now in the United States there are over 260 by 268. These now are cultures in and of themselves. In this sense, one cannot speak of a slide to the right or a collapsing middle. Orthodoxy, in my hypothesis, is fracturing, and in that growth and evolution will emerge traditionally absent categories. Hasidic women, who are federal uh, judges, Haredi rap groups, and modern Orthodox LGBTQ shuls. Nominal categories and spectrums aren't equipped to describe this new reality. And so I turn to the panelists and wonder, what will orthodox jewelry look like in an age of orthodox fracture? Chief Radline, you said you were up no, for anything. No, no, no. Okay, so at the outset, I don't believe that we can predict responsibly. And that is
1: because there are some unknowns. So for example, if you take the UK Jewish community, 10 years ago, we didn't know that in London today we would have over 30,000 Jewish Jews because of the migration of Jews from France because of anti-Semitism. 20 years ago, we couldn't have predicted that in the UK today there are, according to the Israeli embassy, over 80,000 Israeli passport holders providing enormous potential for a community and therefore you cannot simply look at statistics as they exist today and extrapolate them with regard to the future. Also, we could not have predicted the rise in anti-Semitism which is having significant implications for our community at many levels. If I take just one, within the world of Khidr, our government is dictating to us, what we can and can't teach in our schools. Um, creationism is now assur, according to the Department for Education. They are insisting that we teach about alternative lifestyles. And this is threatening our orthodox ethos. I believe that, in addition, the future will depend on what we will or won't do. And what I'm hoping to come out of this session is a few aces, not so much about predictions, which can be quite visible, but rather some eighties, which can emerge based on the reality of what's happening today. As you indicated in your introduction, there is a thinning out of the middle ground. And many of us see ourselves as champions of that middle ground. And actually, this is consistent with what is happening within the major face of the world today. There is movement towards their freedom, And within our world, Haredi Judaism is growing, and there's also an increase in assimilation. But I think we also need to identify another phenomenon. When people ask me, what are the prime challenges facing world Jewry today? I identify three A's. Assimilation, anti-Semitism, and apathy. The first two are the obvious ones. One is the threat from the outside, the other threat from the inside. The third, apathy, is hitting at us very hard. And therefore, we have an area which we can look after with regard to increasing passion and enthusiasm with regard to what we have. And also we're noticing levels of Ebuna which are similar. And we within our schools and in our shuls and within our community centres are needing to come up with all types of strategies in order to increase commitment. But actually if there would be strong emunah then people would come to shul regardless of whether there is or isn't shular for Yiddish. People would be committed to Yiddishkeit from their home through belief in Akadosh Baruch. Hu. And that is an area I believe that we should be I'm sorry for some of the slight issue. Sure enough, I think it goes without saying. We are seeing a thinning of the ground of our area, which we are so passionate about. Um, together with that, and I'll conclude with this, there are a number of positives. Overall, we see that commitment to your to Tamil is actually at an impressive level within our world today. We also see in a changing world when in the palm of one's hand, people have the most incredible phenomena to witness and to enjoy, um, we also see that the neshamot of people are thirsty. They're crying out for some expression and for some direction, and we need to come up with the right recipe in order to satisfy those nishamat. And while people are against the establishment, nonetheless, they want direction. And if we can come up with the right recipe, I believe we can go a long way towards correcting current trends and providing for a more hopeful future. Thank you. Uh,
2: Thank you. Um, I think you said everything I was planning on saying, (laughs) but I wanted to add just a couple of thoughts, and that is that um, not only have we learned through history that statistics are only true for the moment in which those statistics are gathered, and so many other variables can occur over the time. One of my mentors, Rabbi Oscar Z. Zeefassman in Chicago, told us that uh, he was going to be, he was an instructor when he received smicha, that he was going to be one of the people to make sure that they turn out the lights in the Orthodox world, world, because they didn't believe the Orthodox in the But I also believe uh, what Rabbi Lamb spoke about back in 2002, when he was describing the Birkat Ilanot, he talked about the Ilanot Talbot, Briot, briot avot, and Ilanot avot, and he talked about the, the description Chazal gave for this perfect world, which we make this bracha about. And the world isn't perfect. But then he said that we have a responsibility to create what he called a sacred fiction, that with an image of what we want the world, to be, yeah. we can build towards that world. And so if we say, here are all of the problems, and, here, and as a result, that's all we can do. We will watch and wait to turn off the lights, whether it's on centrist orthodoxy or modern orthodoxy. I believe that we have a responsibility to create that sacred fiction, that new idea of what it should be. It can't be the same as it was. It has to continue to evolve. In fact, one of the messages that we heard in the previous session as well. And so what I would propose in terms of the numbers, and in terms of the challenges, is we have to begin to deal with those challenges. I believe we have to begin to deal with those challenges in a real way. For example, the rise of anti-Semitism, not just in the UK, but in the US, as terrible as it is, is also presenting for us an opportunity, an opportunity for our children to begin to grapple with people who are opposed to them, versus just being able to go with the flow as they as we have for a generation or two. The idea is to be proud and to be able to defend identity, which we haven't had to do in the ways before. It may be those opportunities. Educationally, we are still working on a model. Our schools are still working on a model that has been pretty much the same since Belloship. We haven't changed it. Our whether it's the the modern orthodox or the centrist orthodox high schools have the same curriculum you have gemara for all the boys sometimes you have gemara for the girls you have toresh for the girls you have, tenapi, you have, kumash, you have it's the same structure we're preparing them all to learn yeshivot and yet we know not all of them are the ones who should be living who should be learning those yeshivot but should be trained to become believing and participating balabata we haven't grappled with that challenge, and that's going to be something that I believe we're going to see a shift in the next decade of curriculum within our schools, and that will also change that reality. So from my perspective, the statistics are there. They're describing a reality, but they're actually helping us chart a future at the very same time. You quoted Yogi Berra. Let me just give you one more Yogi Berra. My favorite statement is if you wake up in the morning and you don't know where you're going, you may not get there. Well, the reality
0: is, we have to decide... They where left as hard at my Yogi Bear. Well, I mean, But I got a smirk
2: out of it by Mervis, because he hasn't heard Yogi Berra before. <laughs> That's what happens in the UK. <laughs> but the reality is that we have to start planning where we're
0: headed, as
2: opposed to just letting the stream of the currents take us along.
0: So, I'm not going to let you off as easy as I let Mervis. I'm going to come back to and let uh, Moish speak a little bit. But I want—I think it would be very instructive as the dean of Ida Crown, for you to talk about maybe some more of those specifics. What you're seeing in terms of the numbers, whether they're staying the same or decreasing, and how you might stem that tide specifically uh, and grow it, or whether that's not even part of the part of the equation. So I'll come back to you in a minute. I'm gonna let, uh, I'm, just, I'm hoping should go for about
3: 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so f- thank you all, and I'm really uh, humbled to be in such an esteemed uh, panel. As is usually the case, I disagree with a lot of what was said. And uh, I'm just going to try and make it interesting on that basis. Starting with the questions that uh, Josh put on the table, I don't agree with most of the premises. I don't believe that we are in a fractured community. I can't talk to the UK. I can't talk to Europe or anywhere else. But I can talk to the United States. I think quite the contrary is the case. I think the similarities among the spectrum of Orthodox Judaism has never been more similar. I think the differences between the communities are fundamentally cosmetic. There are extremes on a small level at each end, but the vast majority, the 80% in the middle, has very little differences other than cosmetics. How they dress, but not what their aspirations are, not what their focuses are, what not what they want for their children. So I think that we have to view the success of modern orthodoxy as being enormous. And we talk about the secession to the Haredi world, I don't think it's a secession of the Haredi world, I think we should be waving the flag of triumph. Most of the fundamental beliefs that were the the underlying thesis of modern orthodoxy in the 1960s and 70s have been adopted by the right of center world. Today, in the right of center world, other than a sector, maybe 10 to 20 maximum percent, the concept of secular education is normative. The concept of support of Israel is normative. The concept of women going to school is normative. Those were the concepts that we introduced into American orthodoxy. What they have not adopted is some cultural dimensions that represent the modern orthodoxy, and frankly, those are flaws that we have to deal with. The way I would describe it in general is that in the 1960s and 70s, there were different strategies on one fundamental issue, and that was the degree of isolationism that you're going to impose on your community. And there were gradations from the Hasidic world, which I have very little familiarity with, but is clearly the most dramatic in terms of isolationism. And then, in different degrees, all the way from right to left. Those who are the right half of that isolationism have a major problem today. And if it's not addressed, that will dictate the future. And those to the left of the center took a much lighter level of isolationism, and they have an issue that unless they address, it will dictate the future. The issue of the right of center is that in the olden Fifty years ago, forty years ago, when a young person decided to become significantly religious, they were making a choice. When they decided to go to Yeshiva or to Kollel, they were making a choice. Choices develop passion, develop inspiration. Today, that community has been so successful in creating a normative culture that there are no choices being made, and that creates a tremendous amount of apathy in that community. Not because they're not committed, but because they're not inspired. They're normal, coarse behaviors, and unless you're making choices, you don't have the investment in what you're doing as much as you used to. The left of center has a completely different problem. What we did in the modern arts community, for those who were not totally committed to learning, was created a world in which we were so integrated with society that we began to define ourselves primarily as Americans and not as Jews. We were orthodox Americans. The cultural deficiency in our community is so profound that our children are not growing up with the instinctual commitment to Yiddishkeit that is necessary to create a successful Orthodox community. The example I give all the time is, go to a typical 10-year-old's bedroom and look at what's on the wall. There's nothing Jewish. What's on their shelves, it's nothing Jewish. What they're watching, what they're reading, their heroes are not Jews. And if at the age of 10 you don't have that cultural instinct, you're not going to be able to grow up into a committed Jew. And we're, we're, we're failing in that regard. So you have the choices on both sides. Let me finish with one common denominator that we have in both camps. And this was referenced in the previous session, but it's a real big problem. Across the board in America, we made a decision as a community, and it was no doubt a correct decision, but we have to live with the consequences, that in America, we would be mechanic, we would educate our children focusing on Ava Sechel, not Yerushal. We introduced a Judaism that was supposed to be sweet, that was high Torah is intended to be sweet. Yiddishkeit is supposed to be beautiful. Everything is supposed to be lovely and comfortable. Yerushalmiim was a no-no. People are going to run for the hills if you impose on them the will of God. It has to be that they love God. Now that works to some degree, but as people are entering an era in which the norms of society are so antithetical to Torah values, and therefore what you're comfortable with is not what's being taught. In the Torah, you're saying to yourself, I was taught that everything is supposed to be sweet. I wasn't taught that deference to Torah is my obligation. I wasn't taught that I have to assume that God's word is true, even if I'm uncomfortable with it. It's all supposed to be beautiful to me. And therefore, we have instilled in our children across the board, from right to left, this concept of total deference. We don't have that. God has to fit our picture. And that doesn't work because that's not our culture today. Our culture is, in many, many regards, in many regards, antithetical to Torah values. And if we don't figure out how to deal with it, and I have no solution, that's why the rabbis are here, but that's the problem that I'm confronting is when I meet people across the country, that they're saying, I don't want to buy into it. You didn't tell me I have to buy into it.
0: So, uh, as you always do, if you turn the question back on the people who ask the question, so thank you very much for showing that and recording it on, uh, on the recording so that we all see it. He did, he did ask a question of the rabbis, um, and how we uh, so basically, we're all alike, and we're all in trouble. Is that the uh, is that is that the point? With, with, with different challenges. Okay, um, I don't know. I don't know if you wanted to take a shot at uh, at responding to that uh, to that challenge. So two
1: points in response, Yeshikov, uh, on your words, uh, and um, your opening description of the fact that actually we have far more in common than otherwise. Correct but at the same time we're in a world which highlights differences. The tiniest nuance of the difference becomes a big deal. So that, if I take just an example of whether women can or can't be engaged in Kriyat HaTorah, that becomes a very defining issue within our communities and can separate people in terms of the communities they belong to and can increase tension in households and in neighborhoods. You might say, okay, we're all part of the same thing, we have the same aspirations, we're part of the same grouping more or less. However, we are experiencing um, a deep gulf between us, even on the tiny points that confront us. Secondly, the way you described Yrad Shamai Avat Hashem, the Avat Hashem, etc. Beautiful. And I would highlight the role of the home. I think as Rabbanim, we are very often promoting the wrong thing. Well, I mean it's the right thing, but there's something more important than it. It's our schools, it's our yeshivas, it's our it's our shuls, it's the cover that the kids are part of. Most of all, that's where it all starts. That's where the primary that's what determines what's on their walls. That's what determines what they feel. If I would just give an example in terms of connection with Israel. I will always remember as a 10-year-old child in South Africa, growing up in Cape Town, the item on the news, an Israeli soldier was killed on the Golan Heights. And as soon as that was stated, my mother, Allah Shalom, burst into tears. And I will always remember those tears. Which came naturally from a connection to Israel which was so passionate. We don't have that in our homes today. Kids don't see that kind of reaction from parents. And if we want Jews around the world to be more closely connected to Israel, we must start in our own center of our world of Yiddishkeit. And I'll just end with an idea that I enjoy giving over. One of the stories from Helm, which of course is one of the most important centers of Yiddish society in Europe um, relates to the only bridge that existed in town. So there was a crack in the bridge and some people were tripping over it and then it widened and now some of the horses were tripping over and then it widened even more and some of the horses were falling down now it widened even more and now there was a real danger that horses and carriages and people would fall down into the ravine below and it was a threat to life. So the uh, council of sages of Khelm convened and they discussed the issue over an entire day and at the end of the day they issued a resolution which was passed unanimously and that is they would build a hospital <laughs> and under the bridge. <laughs> I think our schools are hospitals. The bridge is the home. If the bridge is intact then everything else finds its place. And we are often given our prize, which is a correct prize, to have our high to schools, to have youth men, young men, and young to do all kinds of things with young people and with older people as well. But if only the home environment would be a good one, then kids, and we see it happening from children around the world who are growing up within the context of assimilated communities, if they're in a home which is true to surround its in a healthy <coughs> and enthusiastic way, those kids have a Jewish future. And I think we should be highlighting the role of the Have I?
2: Well I will disagree with on one, piece my own risk obviously. Um, I do think that there's one very significant difference within the 80% and that is within the modern Orthodox community or however we will define ourselves we are suffering from a millennial generation that does not understand a need for affiliation. Where in a Haredi community, the sense of affiliation is still very strong. Those two differences are perhaps, in my mind, some of the greatest differences that exist. Because whether it is a connection to Israel, where we grew up in Kiva, or any of the other youth movements where you felt it was natural, now you just pick the Shabbaton of choice and so we're once upon a time if you were not an in not Kiva, and if you were in Bidak Kiva you were not in NCSY, an you just look at which hotel the two Shabbatonim are staying at the nicer what you're going to we don't have that sense of affiliation in the Haredi community uh, as long as there remains some concept of Das Torah, which by definition is affiliation they will be able to maintain structures that we can't necessarily maintain I do agree completely with Rabbi Mervis on the role of the home. I don't know how you can disagree with it. And then to go back to the question in terms of schools, I think one of, the, one of the realities that we see today in our schools is our schools are no longer institutions of education, but we have taken the concept of local parentis to an extreme. It has been passed to us. Um, one of my favorite stories that I once thought would only happen once, and it happens almost on any annual the in my school, I'm sure it is not true of any other day school out there, but at least once a year I receive a phone call from a parents with the following message, um, I know my child is supposed to be at school on time for minion, I have tried everything I can to get them up to go to school for minion, Rabbi, the next time they're late, call the house and let them know that they're in trouble. Now, as strange as that sounds, um, it's common. And my response to parents in the beginning, I actually fell for it. And I did it. And then my response today to parents is, I'm sorry, but that's your responsibility. Wake your child up. But our schools have taken on their responsibility. I think we've made a mistake by taking on their responsibility because we've let home the homes go up easy. In terms of the restructuring that you had asked about, um, I see, in my school and among my colleagues, that we are now dealing with the question of, which we not, which use they have to deal with, it was a given. I don't know how many of our children have ever seen a grandparent cry on the Yomim Neroim right I did. How many of them have that sense of Yira, that Moish was referring to, and the sense of Ahava? I see today, um, in our homes, well, we just finished Purim. In my shul, we have two minyani, two main Minyanim on One is we call the family Purim Megillah reading, where the children are there, and it's tum- and there's a tumult, and their costumes, and then there's the adults-only Minyan. The adults-only Minyan was designed initially so that the parents could do a quick Megillah reading and then be there for the family reading. Today, there are more adults at the adult-only Minyan than at the family one. People want to know, where is the fastest Minyan? Where is the fastest Minyan? the young in no the right, where's the fastest minion on a this morning? All of these kinds of things we need to begin to see shifts within our community. They don't see the role modeling that we need. We do have to work on the home. And we have to work even on the types of educators we have. The educators, um, we, have to do, we have to make sure that our educators are people who are role models of all of those things we want them to have. I was privileged to have European teachers who lived their Yiddish faith. They were part of the modern world, but they lived their Yiddish faith. And to this day, I still see that. our children see the same thing among us. And what has to be taught, the role modeling has to be taught, the role of parenting has to be taught and brought back to the parents and explained to them why they have to take that. And I even think in terms of curriculum, we have to rethink that oh, where did that end game Is the end game to get them into the finance, you should vote? In seminars, like Artsy, like Middolos, is that for everyone, or is it an elite group?
0: And what about the other ones? Should we be preparing them Shifting the conversation a little bit, um, let start with you, this animation. Uh, the New York Times the other day, Patrick Kingsley quoted David Nirenberg, the Dean of the Divinity School of the University of Chicago, who said, Today, mainstream European and North American politicians, even Presidents, Premiers, and Prime Ministers, don't hesitate to flirt with or embrace overtly anti-Semitic messages and memes. This electoral utility of anti-Semitism feels new to me, newly flexible, and therefore, newly dangerous is there more anti-Semitism? Is it our perception of anti-Semitic activity? Is there some kind of distinction between
3: those two? Um, I don't have data, and I'm not an expert in anti-Semitic analysis, so I can't answer your question. But I will share with you what I think the greatest concern we need to have about at least the perception, and maybe the actualization, of anti-Semitism in America. And that is the threat that our children will begin to think that maybe they're right. And when you're in an environment where everybody is claiming that you're flawed and that your religion is flawed, your people are flawed, your ethics are flawed, we may be at a stage in our lives where we could turn to it and say, well, they're, they're mistaken, they're anti-Semitic, it's historical. But how do we ensure that our children don't begin over time to think that well, everybody thinks Judaism is flawed, maybe they're right? It's the same problem we have with regard to Torah values, which is a different form of anti-Semitism when we live in a world in which we're told that the morality of Torah is immoral. That's a form of anti-semitism. We haven't called it that, but it's the same challenge. How do we create an environment where we are so confident, so invested in our Judaism, that we're able to forestall the feelings of inadequacy that are being thrust upon us? That, I think, is only doable if we create a sense of Jewish pride. And we are scared of doing that. We've been scared for decades. When we live in an environment in which the secular Jewish world used tikkun olam as their religious mantra, which means that I have to be worried about the rest of the world but not about Judaism per se. And therefore it sinks into our psyche that what we're worried about is how we look to the outside world, how engaged we are with the outside world. We're compromising our internal commitment to our identity and our commitment to Judaism, and that creates a vulnerability that anti-Semitism will really, really have a psychological impact on our children's view of life in Judaism
0: have like the uh, perception that we have in the United States is that this is new or newer or more intense today in the last couple of years than it's been in recent memory but that this has been going on in I don't I, I think in, in the UK I'm not sure if we can ask about Europe I didn't really understand the whole brexit vote so I'm not, I'm not sure if you can speak to the whole continent or not but it does feel as you mentioned the 30,000 French who now, uh, because, again, of this perception of anti-Semitism... So it feels like you have what to teach us in terms of the experience, but I wonder if you can also speak to it as a the freshness of it uh, in, in your experience. Just three brief points. The first
1: is, some of it is perception. As you're suggesting, it has existed all the time, but now we are more aware of it. When Mr. Smith said to Mrs. Smith, in their kitchen in Nottingham something derogatory about Jews. They were the only two who were aware of that conversation. But today, Mr. Smith says the same thing, presses the button, and now the whole world can read his views about the Jews. And when I see it in the palm of my hand, black on white, a shiver goes down my spine. And it has an impact, and there is a perception that something exists which didn't exist before. So some of anti-Semitism as we see it today is perception. Point number two, together with that, it's real, it's increasing, and we need to be very vigilant. So if we look at statistics in the UK, um, during 2018 there were 1,652 recorded incidents of serious anti-Semitism. That's not just the, the tweets, you know, serious acts of anti-Semitism. A rise of 16% from of the previous year, the third year in a row in which we have an increase, it's an all-time record and particularly significant because there was no trigger point. If there is war in Gaza, in our northern border, what have you, then that usually provides a trigger point for added uh, anti-Semitic activities, there was no such point and uh, that's a barometer of where things are leading, and we can give many examples of anti-Semitism. But the third point I want to make is that actually, not that we want anti-Semitism, and it's a terrible platter, but there are advantages. It does strengthen Jewish identity. So we are seeing an increase in numbers of people coming to Shul. We are certainly seeing a greater uh, sense of Jewishness. Um, we I'll give you an example. In political circles, there are quite a number of prominent Jewish people who have been very quiet about their Jewishness. They've been in denial of it. But now, as a result of Jeremy Corbyn, they are very much part of our community. take Margaret Hodge, who has become renowned because of her verbal attack against Jeremy Corbyn. She called him in the House of Parliament, an anti-CY. She herself was married out until her husband passed away. She's in her 70s has been anti-Israel, anti judaism and uh, when I lit the candles in the houses of Parliament, she came. And she told me it was the first Jewish religious experience she had had in 40 years. And she said, my rabbi failed to make me feel Jewish, my parents failed to make me feel Jewish, my school failed to make me feel Jewish, But Jeremy Corbyn has succeeded in making me feel Jewish. (laughs) (laughs) And we're finding this being repeated um, on quite a significant scale. And if I could just add, in a different compartment of events, um, recently uh, chief rabbis of Europe met together for a day long conference. And one of the issues we were discussing was conversion, in our efforts to standardize levels of conversion. And we went around the table just to see levels of conversion. So, for example, in the UK today we have on average about 100 orthodox conversions a year. It's about two people a week. Um, and various levels in various countries. The highest levels of conversion are in France. The Bayline of Paris, which has super high standards, had 850 conversions. Successfully go through that they in 2018. And in France, the highest level for communities is Toulouse, And that's as a direct result of the 2012 terrorist attack on Yeshiva High School. And again, it's symptomatic of people who are thinking, should we take the plunge, should we not? And when Jews feel vulnerable, then there is greater work towards us. And that's certainly happening within Kalani Israel. And what we're doing is we're adding on our visits to places of Jewish extermination with positive messages and I do many of these, and I always feared, how could I take people on a trip to Auschwitz? What questions will they have about, and will know where was God? That never happens. Without any exception, they come back
0: home being strengthened in their strength How does that translate into the classroom, or does it not? Well, I think there are two areas. One
2: is what Malaysia touched about a little earlier, the the sense of positive message to give about Judaism. They were not failing, they were not drowning, they were not the oppressed, but rather we have what to be proud of. One of the most frightening things that I see in terms of anti-Semitism in America today is actually anti-Semitism by Jews. voices for peace is a form of anti-Semitism within a Jewish community. Um, and we need to make sure that our children understand that we have what to be proud of, that we're not in danger. But the other piece is that we also need to reach out. We just began a program which I think is going to be adopted. Further was presented, actually, in a, a program via the OU at the Jump Conference that we just had, where we now send out groups of our students to non-Jewish high schools, to Christian high schools and secular high schools, to speak with them about being Jewish. Everything from asking the question, have you ever eaten kosher? You know, they were just in high school a while ago, where none of the hands went up, and so they passed around a box of Oreos. Um, but to be able to go out and to explain to others and to show the others that, these are, that they are normal, we as a modern Orthodox community are uniquely positioned to do such, such activities. And it also strengthens our identity. When a student has to explain to someone else why it is important for them to be Jewish, and what it means to them to be Jewish, it makes them more Jewish and more proud of their Jewishness. I just want to ask a question for rabbis, and it's it's not
3: directed towards you in particular. It's a frustration I'm having in general with my rabbinic peers in America. And that is, as we're talking about anti-Semitism, as it's becoming a more significant issue on the table, 99% of what we talk about is the practical effects. What should we be doing about it? And occasionally there'll be comments like Rabbi Mervis just gave that there's an increase in Jewish identity as a result. But we in the Batilumi community believe that everything that happens in history is the Yad Hashem trying to evoke from us a religious reaction. What is the religious reaction that anti-Semitism, if it is increasing, is supposed to evoke from observant Jews. Where's the discussion? Where's the, the Han that should be introduced if we actually see an increased in anti Semitism? Our community should be reacting on a Vodas Hashem basis, not just on a political or security basis, because we as the lay leadership, that's what we're focusing on. But I'm looking to the rabbinic leadership to say, okay, these are realities that are now emerging, there's a change in facts, we are supposed to adjust our focus on a Hashem accordingly. Or maybe not.
2: You know, I, uh, one of my responses, which I haven't given that much thought, um, is the, but one area which I do focus on, and I have been teaching about, it, is the question of our own behaviors, our own for the English prime hubos, as, as citizens of the world, and whether or not we are the New the Great that when there is a rise in anti-Semitism, unfortunately, there are members of our community who give additional excuses for expressions, of, for expressions of anti-Semitism. And that one of the responsibilities that we have is to really be asking ourselves, are we behaving in a uniquely Jewish fashion? Are we rising to an occasion of being the Moorluguay, or are we being just
1: one of the land themselves? one thought I think we need to expand this we need to consider significant rise in hate speech and hate crime we're living in a world which is encouraging anti-semitism which is a form of hate speech leading to hate crime and we have a lot to say about pure thoughts pure speech, essay, reaching out to others, not just um, as an antidote to a world which right now is running out of control, thanks primarily to global leaders who should know better, some of whom are engaging in hate speech, and some of whom are turning a blind eye to it. In that area, I believe we've got a huge amount to say, and I believe that many of us are saying that. With regard to anti-Semitism in general, we'll over say the table, where we'll be highlighting the fact of Am Yisrael against all paths, like who preserves us, we have a bridge, he guarantees our continuity. There are so many different areas in which there is a, uh, a response, and certainly we need to provide an added response so that anti-semitism is not merely a negative feature of life and a physical threat uh, to determine
0: uh, our identity out of negativity, but rather to develop something positive. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've heard here in the last few minutes, in the last hour, the beginning of outlining some of the crucial issues that are going to face the Jews in the diaspora and some of the continuing issues. Uh, Some new Aces, hopefully. For uh, how to deal with them, but also some new challenges. How do we respond on a spiritual, religious, ethical, and moral way, kinds uh, of ways to some of these challenges as leaders and as communities? I wish that there was. Uh, you know what? Why don't we try to take at least one question so that we, uh, we'll, and then we'll, uh, we'll try to do a scene. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of responding to anti-Semitism. How do we do so without turning ourselves into victims and fitting into the victimization culture of 2019?
2: Okay. Personally, I think the way to avoid victimhood is not to claim victimhood, but to take the higher ground and to focus whether it's going to be on the type of speech or whether it is in terms of defining who we are. Um, if we come and we always claim you're picking on us, and therefore I have to fight back, that's the big difference between uh, the uh, approaches If we say, instead, that these are the kinds of things that we believe that we not approach a direct reaction. Right? I think uh, a question that uh, begs
0: to be asked for good leadership, if we're prepared to accept some of the good that
2: comes from anti-Semitism.
0: We talked about strength and identity. Um, this is, this is not an opportunity to be promoting Aliyah in the North American community. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but I Are also... There think, well, I also think, I also
2: think, going back to Josh's statistics at the beginning, where he was talking about the lack of growth in centrist Orthodox schools, uh, the reason why there's a lack of growth in, in centrist Orthodox schools is because the centrist Orthodox community has been extraordinarily successful, and there are large numbers of from the Tzruyeh community who are making aliyah. And so, as opposed to staying and repopulating and growing, we have that as well. But it's always a problem. it's always an element on the um, an issue on the table. I find it. Uh, even more important, now that the Jewish agency about 10 years ago decided it wasn't going to be the number one issue, but was going to only follow after Jewish identity, which again goes back to Moish's concept of let's all love each other first, and then hope that people will make Aliyah. So Aliyah continues. I think I've seen a growth in Aliyah from, um, from high school into college age. Um, part of it has to do with finances. College in Israel is really cheap college in the United States is not. I've seen it also in growth in, in pure ideology, that people begin to see the beauty of Erz Israel. The fact that the gap year programs have been successful in schools around the country. We have a much higher percentage of students who are
0: staying in Israel. They have to to with the other to in Savannah looking for college. So that is on the table. Absolutely. The data supports that more students are going to Israel. More students are staying for a second year, and more students are not returning after they go to Israel, even doing the army or going to university, all that data. Uh, it supports it. I wish we had more time for questions, but I would thank you for your question, which is a great segue to the last session, uh, four o'clock, we we'll hear some more about uh, what's going on in the United Israel. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>